today in our time, I want you to take your Bible and go to Psalm chapter 73. And if you were here last Sunday night, I shared with the folks that this has been, this psalm has been on my heart for the last several weeks. And I believe that it is uh, something that I hope and pray will encourage you. It is timely in the day and age in which we live. And, and so as I was praying through this, um, I just felt confident that the Lord would have us to, to give this this morning as a reminder of where we are in the Christian life and where we are in the world around us. Uh, the 73rd chapter of Psalm is a Psalm of Asaph. He is the writer of this. And Asaph was an Old Testament, uh, Old Testament temple worship leader or chief musician. He was appointed by David to lead the choirs in the temple, one of the three. And this is the first of 11 consecutive Psalms that is written by Asaph, and the subject is this, in Asaph's mind, the perplexity of the present prosperity of the wicked, and also the perplexity of the present pains of the godly. In other words, maybe you've heard it put like this, why do good things happen to bad people, and why do bad things happen to good people? So this psalm is Asaph's confession, and his testimony of how he as a spiritual leader nearly ended his ministry because he was viewing life through the wrong lens. And that is what I want us to focus on this morning as we look at this psalm is to evaluate our own lives and to ask ourselves that question, through which lens are we viewing life? Because even as Christians, it is easy in our society to begin looking through the wrong lens. Asaph is reflecting on his doubts. Now, he has come through that. He has come through on the other side, and this is his written testimony to you and I of where he was. Why? Because we've all been where Asaph was. We've all asked the questions that Asaph asked, and he begins with his conclusion then in verse number one. If you're able to stand, let's stand for the reading of God's word. And we're going to read verses one through three. And then we're going to skip down to verse 16. We're going to come back to verses four through 15 in our study. The Bible says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then in verses 4 through 15, Asaph goes through a series of questions, which we're going to review in just a moment. But then he comes to verse number 16. He says, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I therein. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casted them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors? As a dream when one awakes, so, O Lord, when thou awake, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holding me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? 
And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How many of you can say amen right there? For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me, Asaph says, it is good for me, and I would say amen to this, to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as the word of God is given to us, that you would open our eyes, that you would deal with us through your spirit. We pray if there's anyone here today that does not know for sure of their eternal destiny, we pray, God, that you would give them that assurance today. We pray that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus alone, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And Lord, for us who are your children, I pray, God, that you would help us today to see clearly, to see clearly what's going on around us in our world, to see clearly in light of eternity. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be both challenged and encouraged today through your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I would encourage you, if you weren't here last Sunday night, to go back and to listen to the sermon online because we go through this first point in much greater detail. But I want you to see, first of all, uh, Asaph's rehearsed confusion. We see this in verses 1 through 16. As Asaph comes up with a list of what is often considered in the Christian life forbidden questions, Things that we would never vocalize, but that we think in our hearts. Asaph admits that these are questions that he had in his mind, a time of confusion when his focus was not where it should have been. Instead of his focus being on eternity and on eternal things, and instead of his mind being on the unchanging character of God, his focus was on the temporary circumstances of man. And we know this by looking at the prominent pronouns that he lists in, in these first 12 verses. Look at them in verse number 4, and maybe you'll just circle them in your Bible. He says that there were no bands in their death. Their strength is firm. It's, it's on their and they and them. Verse 5, they are not in trouble. They are not plagued like other men. Verse 6, pride compasseth them Violence covereth them. Verse 7, their eyes stand out. They have more than heart could wish. Verse 8, they are corrupt. They speak loftily. Verse 9, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Verse 11, they say, how doth God know? Verse 12, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. His focus was on they and so Asaph begins in verse number one with this conclusion, and thankfully after he comes through this, this is his conclusion, and it should be our, our conclusion this morning, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. And how many of you would give testimony as we have sung this morning that regardless of the circumstances around us, God is a good God? Let me try that again. God is a good God. He is a good God. 
That is his conclusion. And then in verse number two, we see his confession. But as for me, and we can identify, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. He admits that he almost quit because he had a blurred vision of this life and also eternal life. And then not only his conclusion and his confession, but in the next verses, verses 3 through 15, we see his confusion. And these 12 questions here that he asks, and I'm going to just run through them really quickly as we go through the scripture. But first of all, in verse number 3, he asks this question, why do unbelievers have a better life than me? Look at verse 3, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And we mentioned this Sunday night, remember this, always remember this, it is always foolish to envy a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Don't ever envy the fool. Luke 16 uh, gives us that story of the rich man who disregards God in this life, who prospers in this life. But at the end of his life, he envies Lazarus. Listen, because what matters most is not our current condition, but our eternal position. Our eternal position in Christ. And in Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, Jesus asked the people a great question that relates to this very thing. He says, for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Second question he asked, why do unbelievers seem to have less struggles in death? In the first part of verse number four, he says there are no bands in their death. Not only does Asaph see their possessions, but he sees this false peace that they have. And then he says uh, in the second part of verse number four, their strength is firm. In other words, why do they enjoy better health than me? It's saying they have good health. And often we wonder why it is that some of the most committed Christians that we know go through some of the hardest health conditions. I think of our dear brother in our community, Pastor Earl Sweat, who I know is a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you wonder why he is going through what he's, what he's going through. And those in our church that we are, are praying for who are going through great difficulty Little Penelope, the, the, the little girl three years old who has cancer, whose family and grandparents are missionaries and they're committed family to Christ. And we wonder these things. It's important that we view them through the right lens. Even our own founder and pastor emeritus, Brother Fred, and we don't understand why God allows him to go through what he's going through. And we may never understand it this side of heaven. And we have to trust as he concludes in verse number one, that God is a good God and God knows what he's doing and we have to look at everything in this life through an eternal lens. The fourth question, why do ungodly people seem to have a trouble-free life? He says, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. The fifth question, why aren't prideful pagans revealed for who they really are? How many of you would say, I've asked that same question before? Why doesn't God reveal them for who they really are? He says in verse number six, pride compasses them about as a chain. Violence covers them as a garment. Asaph looks at these people and he sees their possessions and he sees their false peace, seemingly this this peaceful way in how many of them die. He sees their pride and their arrogance that they somehow seem to always escape the judgment 
of God for their crimes and their wrongdoings. And then the sixth question, why do wicked people get away with everything? Verse 7 and 8, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. And here Asaph looks at their pleasure. They have more than their heart could wish. They have their closets full. They have their storage full. They even have to go out here and build more storage units to hold all the stuff of people in this world. And then he says their perversity. They are corrupt and they speak wickedly and loftily. And so as Asaph examines life through the wrong lens, what he sees is that people who deserve to be punished are prospering and people who deserve to prosper, it seems like to me that they are being punished. Verse number seven, why are sinners allowed to blaspheme without being silenced? He says, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. He, he talks here of their pompacity and their profanity. And we often ask ourselves, why does the mainstream media who refuses to tell the truth and who tries to distort everything that is a reality in this world to a leftist view, why do they have such a voice in this world? Why doesn't God just shut them up? Why doesn't God just interrupt every broadcast with the truth? Asaph said, I looked at all this and I almost slipped. I almost threw in the towel. I almost quit. And he continues, verse, uh, verse number 10, why are wicked people applauded? Why do their admirers keep coming back to them? Regardless of what they do, they stand in line to seek their interviews and their autographs. And he is bothered by the fact that they always seem to get the standing ovations. They always seem to be the ones that are recognized, who are given the awards. And then the ninth question, why doesn't God vindicate himself through some type of judgment? Again, how many of you have asked that question before? Verse 11 and 12. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are... These are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. And so Asaph looks at all this and it appears to him that the wicked are unholy, that they are unaccountable, that they are unrestrained in their actions and that they are unsilenced by God. And then Asaph turns from looking at the other people and he has a pity party for himself. And you'll see the pronouns begin to change in verse number 13 through 17. Now he talks about I and my and me. I have cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in innocency. I have been plagued. If I say I will speak thus, I should offend. Verse 16, when I thought to know this, his attention has turned onto himself. Not only do sinners prosper, he says, but it seems to me that it's the saints who struggle. And then his 10th question, why doesn't holiness pay off? He says in verse 13, verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. He says, sinning seems to be worth it and there is no payday for those who are pure. And then his 11th question, why am I convicted of sin when the wicked never slow down? And in their, they seem to never be bothered. He says, for all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. I mean, why is it that, that God chastens us, but he lets them alone? And as I illustrated last Sunday night, it is because God chastens his children. He does not chasten as much those who are not his children. I don't go out into the community, into the neighborhood when our kids were young and bring them all in and discipline them. I bring ours in and discipline them. 
And by the way, the chastening and the discipline of the Lord is an action that demonstrates his love for us. Who the Lord, Lord loves, he chastens. The psalmist said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. And then the 12th question, how am I supposed to carry this frustration and doubt in silence? As he says in verse number 15, if I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. And then in verse number 16, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Now, admittedly, every wicked person does not prosper. And every godly person doesn't suffer at least not to the extent that maybe we read about in Job. But Asaph's question really is, is why any wicked person would prosper at God's hand. Why they would prosper at all or why any godly person should suffer at all. Why isn't God's wrath completely upon the wicked? And why isn't his blessing completely upon the, the just and the godly? From his view, evil people seem to have less problems than the redeemed people. And God is letting them off the hook. That is his rehearsed confusion, and all that is the introduction. Well, all that is the review. Now we get to get into the sermon today, all right? Not only do we see his rehearsed confusion, but we see his renewed clarity. Look at verse number 17. Asaph's testimony is that he felt this way. He had all this confusion. Mark this word in verse number 17, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I, notice these two words and mark them there. What? Their end. Their end. Say those two words with me. Their end. Asaph's perspective changed when he went into the sanctuary, the, the gathering place of the people of God, the saints of God at this time, the place where God met with his people. And when he put down the enemy's lens that elevated the prosperity of the wicked and put on uh, his glasses occupied with eternal lens, it was like he saw a completely different scene. He then understood their end. Notice, first of all, that he regains a biblical perspective on the loss in verse number 18 and 18 through 20. He sees clearly now their end. He's turned his eyes back on God. No longer is, do you see the pronouns thee and they and their or I and me and my, but now you see that he's turned his eyes towards God and in verses 18 and following, you'll notice he uses thou or you speaking of God. He's turned his eyes back on God. And listen, church, let me just say this, that when we start spending more time reading the newspapers or watching the news than we do reading our Bible, we will have a blurred view of reality. When we are continuously filling our hearts and our minds, when we are surrounding ourselves with lost people rather than the family of God, when we're surrounding ourselves with the enemies of God, how can we not expect that to affect our perspective on life? When we begin listening to the counsel of God rather than the counsel of the world, our perspective will change. It's time that we start seeing through the right lens. First of all, he saw the perspective, the right perspective on the loss. You know, the enemy in our flesh, it's really good on getting us to focus on right now. 
You know why so many people in our nation are in debt today? Because it's all about right now. Have pleasure for right now. And if we're not careful, that's all we see is right now. When Asaph turned his eyes toward eternity, he saw not the prosperity of the wicked, but he saw the end of the wicked. And when he saw the end of the wicked, he wanted nothing to do with that ending punishment because the end of those that reject God, as we saw last week in Mark chapter 9, is eternal punishment. And Asaph begins to see, look at verse number 18, that the unbelievers are slipping into ruin. Verse number 19, they are swept into death without warning or escape or hope despite their earthly bank accounts and their cars and their houses and their land and their power and their infidelity. Despite all of that, Asaph sees that death hurries them away away to eternal punishment. It was Queen Elizabeth I who had every pleasure, everything that you could ask for in this life. As she lay on her deathbed, her last words were this, all my possessions were but for a moment of time. Don't ever forget that. Verse 20 reminds us that they are surprised by the judgment. Look, he says, as a dream when one awakes, so, O Lord, when thou awake, thou shalt despise their image. Anybody ever had a dream before and you thought that that dream lasted a long time? It only lasted a few seconds or a few minutes. And he speaks here that as a dream when one awakes. One day they will awake in eternity. Look, one day they're going to awake in eternity and realize that this life here was just a dream. As fast as a, as a, as, as a dream. It was brief as a dream. And this is why when we think about those that reject God, as I mentioned last week, we don't take pleasure in their eternal punishment. Our hearts are broken that that is where they are headed. And it should cause us to want to win them to Christ, to take the gospel to them, knowing that if they reject the gospel of Jesus, that they will suffer forever. Asaph regains a biblical perspective on the lost, but... Secondly, he regains a biblical perspective on himself in verses 21 through 24. Look at verse 21 and 22 again. He says, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant, I was as a beast before them. Asaph says this, When God pricked my heart, when God convicted my heart of my evil envy towards the wicked, And the truth about eternity, I realized how foolish and how ignorant I was. In verse number 23, Asaph is reminded that that God is continually guarding us. Look what he says, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. God never stops guarding his children. And then in the first part of verse number 24, he is reminded that God God is... Uh, wisely guiding us. He says, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. And in the second part, he is reminded that God will ultimately glorify us. And I, I love this word. Mark it in verse number 24. And afterward, receive me to glory. Afterward. I think Spurgeon summarized it best when he said this, we can happily put up with the present when we truly foresee our future. 
afterward. Or as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, for our light affliction, which is, I love this phrase, but for a moment works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Listen, church, there is an afterword for us. There is an afterword for, for everyone, but for the child of, uh, of God, the afterword is glory. The afterword is bliss. In other words, as Asaph begins to see clearly through the lens of eternity, what he sees, Dr. Clark, is that this earth is the only hell that we will ever experience. And for a lost person, this earth is the only heaven that they will ever experience. He's seeing clearly now. Several weeks ago, I reminded you of the the story of Eric Little, the man whose life is told in the movie Chariots of Fire, a man who had conviction and priority, and it was a bright light for Jesus, and I won't rehearse the story, but following the Paris Olympics in 1924, he went to China as a missionary, and I mentioned that several weeks ago, and in China, he became very ill, and he died after sending his family back across the country, and a few days later, as they were cleaning out Eric's stuff, they found a piece of paper by his bed, Brother David, and it had on it the date of his death. He had written this on the date that he died. And what he had scribbled there were the words to his favorite hymn, which also is one of my favorite hymns, a hymn that I would love sung at my going home celebration service. It says this, be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithfully will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful what? End. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on. When we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment and grief and fear are gone. Sorrow forgot, forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past. Safe and blessed, we all shall meet at last. Be still, my soul. As I say often, the best is Not in this life. The best is yet to come. We see his rehearsed confusion. We see his renewed clarity. And then lastly, we see his restored confidence in God. Asaph begins to sing about God and himself. Notice verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Can you see the contrast of the first part of the chapter and now the second part of the chapter? Why? Because he has corrected his vision. He has put on the right lens. He's now looking through eternity. He now sees God in his glory. And this is such a key in the Christian life, to live without distraction in light of our eternal future. Can you imagine getting a a few days vacation in heaven and then coming back to earth? That That would stink, wouldn't it? But can you just imagine for a moment if you spent three days in heaven, how it would change you when you came back to earth? 
how it would change your perspective? I would dare say, Brother Steve, that everything in our life would change. That our priorities would change. That what we craved would change. That what we lived for would change. That how we view trials would change. That, that, that what we value changed and how we valued people and how we valued church would change and how we valued prayer would change and how we valued the word of God would change. I think that it would change what we read and what we watched and what we spent our time doing. I think that it would, it would change what makes us sad and what makes us glad. And that is exactly what the psalmist is saying Put on the right lens and do not look at life through the lens of temporary things and the prosperity of the wicked, but but see clearly eternity. And may that change our life and may that guide our life. And here's the convicting part, that we have much more revealed scripture than Asaph had. We have the complete canon of Scripture. We have the gospel accounts of Jesus. We have the testimony of the the disciples. We have the book of Revelation and the testimony of Paul and John, both who were given views of heaven. Asaph restored eternal vision. His, His circumstances didn't change. Look, nothing about his circumstances changed that are recorded for us, but his perspective changed when he turned his eyes back on God. And then we see his reestablished reliance in verse 26 and 27. My flesh, he says, my flesh and my heart, note this, it's important. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, he isn't doing better because he's stronger physically or he's stronger emotionally. That's not what changed. He says that his flesh and his heart are still weak. He is worn out. The difference is that he is no longer relying on the energy and the strength of his flesh, but he has again turned his reliance upon God and put his strength, and his strength is no longer coming from himself, but coming from God. He's relying on God's strength instead of his own. I love those two words there in verse 26, but God, but God is the strength of my heart. Listen, church, God did not abandon Asaph. Asaph was confused and he was thinking there for a minute that God had abandoned him. And and, and if you start to feel that way and you start to look around at the world and you look at the craziness going on and you might think, where is God? Where is his judgment? Where is his justice? I want you to go back, not to the circumstances of life, but to the unchanging character of God and realize that in the end, God wins. And what he says is going to happen, will happen. You could take it to the bank. You can take Psalm 3 to the bank. How are they, or or Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. By the way, those that are going after Israel, that is the description of them in verse number 3 that are trying to break their bands asunder and casting away their cords from us. But I want you to notice what verse number, 20, uh, verse number four says, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall have them in derision. And then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. 
but God is the strength of my life. And then lastly, and we're done, verse 27 points out that while God is always with the saved, that it is the opposite reality of the unsaved. Notice verse number 27, these words, they shall what? Perish. They shall perish. They have followed sin and turned their back on their creator. It says even there that they go a whoring. I think specifically speaking of the Jews, God's chosen people who turned their back on him. But I think it would extend to all those who, like Judas, had externally attached themselves to Jesus Christ. Attached themselves to God, but were not true believers in him. And then we see his renewed mission in verse number 28. And this is so important. He says, it's good for me to draw near to God. I've put my trust in the Lord God. And here's the result, that I may declare all thy works. Asaph's final resolve, look, should be our final resolve. To know him and to make him known. To know God and to make him known. Would you say that with me? To know God and to make him known. To know him in a deeper way. That's what he says in verse number 27. It is good for me to draw near to God. Spurgeon wrote, God's presence is a great privilege and a cure for a multitude of problems. Listen, if you start to see that your vision is a little out of view, maybe you need to pick up the word of God and spend some more time in it. When we get our eyes off of Jesus, we aren't productive in the mission The desire of all of our hearts should be to know him in a greater way and to make him known. And as Asaph began to view life through eternal lens, he saw clearly the reality of eternity. When you look around you and you see life and earth, are you focused on what's going on here or do your mind and does your heart quickly go towards eternity? It should go quickly towards eternity. Both the end for us and the end for the wicked. In 1899, and I'll close with this, there were two men that died. Spiritually, they could not have been any further apart. Robert Ingersoll, named the great agnostic, was a lawyer and a writer. He was an empty but brilliant, eloquent atheist that delivered many lectures that this life was all there was. And when he died, kind of suddenly, in 1899, his wife and his family were so distraught at his death that they would not remove his body out of their home until it became unhealthy for them to keep the body there. They were overtaken with grief, despair. This life was all there was, and it was done. It was gone. But that same year, 1899, there was another man that died, and and he was not educated. He was not eloquent or brilliant by man's standards. He was known as the evangelist who butchered the king's English, and his name was Dwight L. Moody, Dwight Lyman Moody. And his final words could not have been any more hopeful, any more different, drastically different. He was moments from death and his family was gathered around his bed and he was in and out. And suddenly he arose, 
sat up in his bed and he said this, I see earth receding and and heaven opening. God is calling. Moody's son, Will, who stood there by his bed, said, relax, Dad, you're dreaming. (laughs) To which Dale Moody replied, this is no dream, Will, called his name. This is bliss. This is glory. Two different men, the same year, going out into eternity. One with a rock-solid faith in Jesus Christ. And one with no hope beyond this life. And listen, it all depends on how you view life. What lens are you looking through? Look what he says in verse number 24, one more time. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. And afterward, say this with me, receive me to glory. Receive us to glory. And I pray this morning that if you are a child of God, that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, that you have been, as John 3 says, born again. In a moment of time when you turn from your sin and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, that you will be reminded today to look through the right lens and not to be distracted or discouraged by the realities of this life around us. And if you're not saved, I pray that you will understand that God wants to save you today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off another day. And allow someone to take the word of God and show you how you can know that you have eternal life.